True Nature Radio. I'm Lori Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. Today we're really happy to have with us our guest, Dr. Steve Marsden, who has a clinic in Canada, along with his wife, where they actually have half of their patients are human and half of their patients are animals. Dr. Marsden is in the unique position where he has a degree in veterinarian medicine. He's also a naturopathic doctor and has a degree in Chinese medicine as well. He founded the Natural Path Clinic in Edmonton, Canada, and he is a world-renowned speaker on how to treat animals and people naturally. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. So the first thing we want to know, Steve, is after starting off as a conventional veterinarian, you went to school to be trained in natural medicine, and you've ended up treating both animals and humans. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and why you undertook it? Sure. It's um, an interesting story because I started off with this really healthy disrespect. Maybe it's an unhealthy disrespect for anything in the way of alternative medicine, and that really was just an attitude that I dutifully learned from my teachers very in a very unquestioning manner. Um, so I, um, but I was not gratified as a conventional practitioner. So I was, um, uh, there were conditions I couldn't diagnose, and when I could diagnose it, the treatment was sometimes worse than a disease itself. And I also couldn't understand patients well enough. I mean, they would be talking about how their dog is waking them up at 3 o'clock in the morning, coughing all the time and harping on about how this was ruining the quality of their life. And I was exasperated by not knowing the answer to why that was happening. And it's like, okay, lady, blah, blah, blah. Can we just get to the part where I give you the prednisone and we'll move along? And so I I didn't like the fact that I was beginning to get irritated by my field. And so I, uh, at first I thought, well, maybe the problem is we can't do enough lab tests. You know, we just don't have the diagnostics. People don't have the money to spend. If only I practiced human medicine, I could practice good quality medicine. So I decided to apply to medical school, and I got accepted. However, they said that because I'd done organic chemistry so long before, um, I had to do it again. So there's a price for everything, and that was way too high a price for me to pay. (laughs) So scrap the organic chemistry concept. And around this time, a woman... uh, came in with her dog to get her dog vaccinated and her kids came with her as is often the case when the dog goes to the vet and she was it was a slow day and I <clears throat> sometimes think about what would have happened if I hadn't followed up on her comment um, but because your life kind of turns on a dime that way and uh, so her comment was well, I believe in preventative medicine for my kids, too. I was like, well, who doesn't? So that's what I mean when I say it almost didn't deserve a response. But I said, what do you mean? Because it was a slow day and I could make conversation. And she said, well, I give my kids arsenic every morning. And I said, what? (laughs) Arsenic? (laughs) And I flashed a look at them. They're standing at the wall and they didn't look all sweaty and pale and vomiting on their shoes. And I said, what do you mean arsenic? And she goes very defensively. Well, it's homeopathic. It's like, oh, well, there you go then. That must be just fine. So I I had to go to the library because this was the days before I had a bookstore habit. I went to the library to basically look up what branch of medicine, homeopathy, would advocate giving kids arsenic every morning. And, of course, 
they didn't necessarily do that, but what they advocated instead, this idea of teeny tiny doses of things and expecting big things out of them, that just seemed even more ludicrous. So I just about gave up on the concept of alternative medicine for good when I snatched the book off a shelf because my eye just happened to stray as I was slamming the book shut to this last page where the vets listed uh, it was listed oh in England we're using uh, homeopathy to treat blah 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 and all those things were things I was frustrated by so I took the book out of the library and I carried it around with me in the car and I became addicted to the little book and I would read it at stoplights and uh, I just became enthralled with this arena of alternative medicine and I decided uh, I've got to explore it more so I started exploring it and it was a long road but uh Eventually, I started to treat things that I couldn't treat at all from a conventional perspective. And it took me two years to get to that point of self-instruction where I was pulling that off, at least occasionally. And finally, one of the cases was so spectacular, I just said, I have, that's it, I'm done. I've got to go and round out my training. My teachers were wrong. And I've got a big hole in my education. I have to go fill it. And so Portland was really the only place I considered going. I thought about going to Toronto, um, but they had their school in a seedy-looking elementary school. So I was very disappointed when I got out of the cab in Portland, and at the time it was in a seedy-looking elementary school. <laughs> but it's much better now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steve, um, before we come and talk a little bit more about actual cases at your uh, interesting clinic where you treat both people and animals at the same time, um, Tell us a little bit about how it was going back to school because you're in a unique position. I find one of the biggest problems in alternative medicine or uh, regular medicine is that there is most people are very stuck in their patterns and they don't know. They talk about Western medicine. They don't know what it's like. On the Western medicine side, they don't know what alternative medicine is like and think it's not real science or so. So what was your experience of going for after you're getting your doctoral degree in veterinarian medicine, then getting a doctoral degree and a master's degree in the alternative health sciences. How did that compare from your experience? Was there one that was more difficult than the other, or what was the joy factor involved, et cetera? Right. Well, veterinary school was certainly um, tough, but it was also my first exposure to a lot of this material. So I would have expected a medical school to be a easier the second time through. That being said, they did offer me advanced standing. They said, you know what, you can forego the first couple of years because of your veterinary training if you want to. And I didn't want to because I'd already been jolted out of my complacency and I wanted to understand, because I wasn't in Chinese medicine yet, but how does a naturopath tackle histology? How does a naturopath tackle physiology? So I was just academically curious what they would get out of physiology that uh, you know, a, a conventional medical professor wouldn't. So I audited all those classes, and certainly the content was, you know, they measures up, absolutely. Um, there was at one moment, day one, hour one, when we started talking about epithelium and histology, like, oh, my God, I'm all the way back here. But after that one, one moment of temporary ruining the decision, um, you know, I just really enjoyed it, and I, I, I audited those full two years, and then, um, and then went on into the Chinese medicine program, and 
And that, of course, was very – that was very challenging. I don't think I really fully digested my Chinese medical education until at least a couple of years after I graduated. So what was the difficult part there? Well, Chinese medicine for me um, – I mean, you yourself were an inspiration to me because – Chinese medicine seemed to be talking about an entirely different level of things or on an entirely different level. And part of my experience in NCNM was broadening my horizons and allowing myself to temporarily believe in things at least uh, just to see what I could do with them that I wouldn't ordinarily subscribe to. The first time I heard about Chinese medicine, I thought it was hogwash. It was when I turned into vet school and we had to take a public speaking course and one of the students in her 15 minutes decided to synopsize all of Chinese medicine and veterinary <laughs> acupuncture. It's like, boy, if that didn't put you off, nothing would. So the only reason I went into Chinese medicine at NCNM was because one of my friends was going into it. And he was in there for about three days and he promptly dropped out and left me sitting there. But I stayed. And one of the reasons I stayed was because you're obviously an intelligent guy, and yet you were embracing these concepts that were at times decidedly esoteric. And uh, I was just intellectually intrigued by that too. And I began to realize that reality was kind of, uh, could be kind of construed as occurring on multiple levels simultaneously. And that intrigued me, but it was also hard for me uh, coming from a strictly scientific background. So now I've kind of evolved as a practitioner to the point where I, I find Chinese medicine very, uh, very intuitive and very easy to practice. But it was a stretch for me at first. But you were, a, you were an inspiration, especially your own personal story. I don't know if everyone's heard that or not, but I'm not going to tell it. <laughs> but that hooker in Shanghai, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on that note... Um, Steve, one of the many reasons why I'm excited that you joined us today and that our listeners get to benefit from your perspective is that you're probably one of the people I know who is pretty uniquely qualified to be able to talk about the true integration of Western science and Western scientific research and classical Chinese medicine. I know that you are well-versed in both at this point, and I'd love to hear your perspective on how those two either do or don't meet. That is really what kind of consumes most of my time right now, is exploring that interface between Chinese medicine and, and actually the most cutting-edge medical research. And I find that um, studies in particular on circulation that are published in the last couple of years and on inflammation, um, they parallel exactly what Chinese medicine was laying down uh, 2,000 years ago plus. And our discoveries back in the 60s and going forward about the link between diet and heart disease and most importantly inflammation, that link clearly being laid down repeatedly uh, 2,000 years ago. So, you know, the more that I look into modern medical research, the more I find that it validates Chinese medicine and it's extra validating because nobody who's writing these articles knows a whit about Chinese medicine and yet everything they're saying is validating 
sometimes almost verbatim what's written down in some of the classics. And so um, I'm increasingly of the mind that the early Chinese must have been excellent scientists, very close students of nature, painstaking observations, painstaking construction of a theory. I was initially put off because of the, the terms and the lexicon and you know, I didn't understand the context. I'm a Westerner. I'm not from the East. But once you shove all that aside, everyone's saying the same thing. And so I'm beginning to think that uh, there really is just one medicine and there are just different tools that can be brought to bear and they don't have to be even used just piecemeal one at a time. They can be combined synergistically. And so in our practice, you know, we're treating serious disorders every day in animals and sometimes in people. And we are, um, we're at this place where I'm looking at somebody and I'm seeing the Chinese medical diagnosis and I'm seeing the conventional medical diagnosis and all that is running through my head simultaneously and I can see how they dovetail perfectly and it makes it very clear what needs to be done therapeutically. And it's a very nice place to be after all those years of struggling and study. Yeah, so you're talking about true integration, that really there's no defining separation between the medicines. It's just how deeply you understand right. the big picture. Yeah, <clears throat> integrated medicine is definitely a catchword these days, so much so that it's, I think it's lost some of its meaning. Um, and for a lot of people, it's just having a bunch of practitioners all share the same receptionist. And that's not integrated medicine. Integrated medicine is where one brain or one mind, as far as I can tell, understands both sides simultaneously. Or failing that, that you have a cluster of practitioners in a room that all see things slightly differently, but they all have mutual respect for each other. And so out of the discourse between them or amongst them emerges this integrative picture that everybody kind of grasps. I think I would actually like to do that in my human practice is have a patient sit there and listen to two or three viewpoints kind of emerge about them and then listen in on the synthesis amongst those practitioners. That I, I find when people go to holistic practitioners, that's as much of what they're looking for. Yes, they're in pain. Yes, they've got constipation. Yes, they can't get 10 yards from the bathroom. But more than anything, they're no hungry. Yeah, <laughs> depending on the day. But they hunger most of all for that self-knowledge and they're just all ears when that kind of information comes across. It's always bothered me that that kind of conversation oftentimes occurs outside of the examination room in some of our instructional facilities because that's really why the patient is there half the time. Steve, you've um, really, a part of your work is to go and lecture including in Asia actually. You're, you're inspiring people all around the world uh, about treating animals naturally. And one of the messages that I've taken from your two books, you also author, acclaimed author of two um, books, The Manual of Natural Veterinary, Veterinary Medicine and the Textbook of Herbal Veterinary Medicine. And in there, you make it clear to the readers that what works for people works for animals as well, and there's not that big of a difference. And um, But at the same time, there is something very unique 
from your perspective of what you can learn uh like I, for instance, as somebody who exclusively, for the most part, treats people, once in a while somebody asks me, oh, could you also do a freebie for my dog here? And then I'm always surprised when it works. Um, <laughs> the, but the, 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 there is a difference. Of what, what, what can we learn from, from you? Um, or what has veterinary medicine, treating animals, taught you about treating people? That's a really fascinating question, um, at least for me anyway. Maybe not for the people that are listening, but whatever. <laughs> so the, what I, I think what, was, what I bring to the human exam room is the fact that I'm a veterinarian. And so veterinarians are used to working and, and having pretty complete solutions for problems of patients who can't talk and they can't communicate um, beyond, you know, gestures and their owners either by intuition or observation they're able to kind of gather some of what's wrong but there's some big holes uh, that can't be filled and as a veterinarian I could observe that patient's behavior I could do a very detailed physical examination and I could um, induce uh, if that's the right word probably induce a lot about what was going on with them and this includes uh, behavioral problems especially. So behavioral problems are common in animals and, and they're very frustrating for veterinarians because they think, well, I can't talk to the dog, I can't explain it, they're not logical, they're just out of their minds. And so a lot of practitioners throw up their hands about behavioral problems. And I came, so that aside from the fact that I bring these, this tactile skill set to humans and I also um, began, I also realized that very complex emotional disorders oftentimes have very simple solutions. So when I go to see a human patient, of course they can give me information. And sometimes the problem is people can give you too much information. And I actually don't want to know all the theories from all the books they've read about their problems. And so I could. I oftentimes can keep it very simple and quiet because I know how to extract a lot of what's going on about that patient without them having to tell me. You know, I can I can piece it together fairly easily and fairly rapidly. So that skill is very handy in treating people because because sometimes people don't trust this medicine and they don't know me and they don't really feel comfortable just kind of opening up on the first visit. But I pride myself on getting people better in one visit, or maybe two, three at the outside. And so I'm happy to pursue relationships with people that really want that ongoing support, but I also feel like it's my job to get people better, to get animals better, to get them out the door quickly, have them figure out what they need to do in their lives to sustain their health, and off you go, and take care of the next person that comes along. And so to do that, I need to kind of have the complete picture without people divulging their entire life story or feeling like they have to expose themselves to be that vulnerable. So that's the first thing, is to bring that skill set. The second thing, though, is I, I, I assume that animal mental-emotional problems and human mental-emotional problems are very different, that depression in a dog is dif different from depression in a person. How could it not be? But I was getting rid of behavioral problems in animals by treating their bodies and... Uh, so I started to try to just tackle those kinds of major issues in people by, 
by asking myself, could this primarily be a bodily issue for that person? And frequently, obviously not always, but frequently it is that just by treating their body from a Chinese medical perspective and from a Western medical perspective, they would get better. And you think, how would that be possible? And what I have learned is that um, it's all about circulation. The brain, if you look at the, uh, the brain of an animal or a person, the way we learn it in neuroanatomy is kind of laid out in a row. You know, there's the front, the forebrain, and the hindbrain, and everything in between it. And it sounds like it's kind of a linear type of structure, but it's a concentric type of structure. So the center of the brain, your emotional centers, your, the centers that, that keep your heart beating, that keep you breathing, they are at the center of the brain, I think, because they always need an ample blood supply. Those centers have to keep going, those reptilian brain components. The cortex, that is the part that's compromised if people or animals don't have great circulation up there. And if the cortex is underperfused relative to that reptilian brain center, they feel their emotions very keenly. They can't break out of them. They can't think their way out of uh, a situation. All I've done is just markedly increase people's cortical circulation, and the research is there on how to do that with our various methods. It's clear that that's what we're doing. And you see a lot of these problems just melt away. And I think it really surprises people who've been grappling with depression for 10 years to wake up and go, huh, I feel fine. I guess I'll go back to work and start earning a living. Like, and it just, it, it seems like it should be some momentous transition, like birth. And instead, it's just this gradual melting away of a problem. And people one day just, they almost don't even notice that it's left. And they just feel like themselves again. They just go on with their daily existence. So that's the third thing I've noticed is that illness tends to go away very meekly and quietly and it just melts and without crisis. And um, so those are some of the things that I have, have noted as I've worked on both species. Fascinating. Um, a question for me follows up on that is, do you have any experience with those patients who say their depression goes away after being treated with acupuncture and an herbal formula? Does it tend to stay away long-term if they don't keep getting treated? Do you? Do you have a sense of that? I would. Uh, what I try to do is convert my success with acupuncture and herbs into. So, what are you doing for your lifestyle? And to take the success and what exactly did work for you, and help to understand what does that exactly mean about how you should be eating and should you be exercising hard or not very hard or, you know, kind of beginning to take a larger view of that person the way we would take a larger view of an animal and their surroundings and their social groupings and their diet. I just do the same thing with a person, and so that's kind of where the naturopathic medical training comes in, restoring the causes of health, basically. Basically, I'm not very good at treating lift. <laughs> so the, uh, you invoke these causes of health, and uh, s sometimes people just need a little propping up with herbs or the occasional acupuncture treatment, but a lot of problems can just disappear permanently. The one that just springs to mind as I'm talking is a woman who had this pathological fear of flying, and uh, which is too bad because her husband really liked to go on vacation. 
you know, and we're Canadian, so she they were fond of going to Cuba, and they would like to go for a few weeks at a time. And she just lived in deathly fear of this approaching plane flight. And so one day, I'm treating her dog for allergies, which are also curable, by the way. And and there's probably a lot of listeners that would be interested in that. But I'm treating her dog for allergies. We're getting rid of those, and the conversation turns to her because she's a very anxious, tightly wound person in general. And she says, I'm terribly afraid of flying. Um, Can you do anything for it? And I said, sure, just because I've learned by now that there's precious few things that we can't treat with Chinese medicine. So she comes in herself one day, and she has this basic problem where her circulation is pulled to the interior. How can you tell? Because you can feel it in her pulse that this is where her blood supply is. It's not out in her cerebral cortex. So the goal is just to move the blood from the inside to the outside. And naturally, she has cold hands and feet. And the hands and the feet and the head, they all kind of vary somewhat together. As much as you think your head is important, it's only about as important as a paw or a tail in terms of where the blood goes and how well is it serviced. So that was all we did was we just moved her blood, moved her chi, boosted her circulation peripherally. And presto, this lifelong fear of flying just vanished. I was only had about 10 days because she's getting on a plane to go to Cuba again. And so that was a very narrow window. But it was easy to achieve because circulatory changes in, are, with acupuncture are virtually instantaneous, and then you just have to maintain them. Herbs back up what the acupuncture is doing, and then... Um, you know, oftentimes illnesses are self-propagating. So if you just get them out of that state and keep them out of that state for a while, they oftentimes won't drift back in because the self-propagating stepping stones that were keeping them trapped before are not in play now. And so, yes, you can permanently resolve these issues relatively simply. You just mentioned acupuncture. Um, You have so many different methods at your disposal, from antibiotics to steroids to acupuncture to homeopathy. What does? Uh, how do you decide to choose which one to use? And give us maybe an example of a typical animal or person, people, sure. patients. Yep. Um, <clears throat> well, an example of an animal patient uh, would be one that I just saw yesterday, and this would be an, a good example of how we combine therapies. And this was a uh, a pretty serious dog, so I, I'm not sure how he's doing today, but he came in yesterday with uh, acute onset of hind limb paralysis. And this is paralysis of the worst kind. So you pinch his toes, he can't feel it. He's got no anal tone. He's completely incontinent uh, in every way imaginable. From a prognostic perspective, very little can be done for this dog. And he's been in this state for several days. So the the possible golden period for intervening with drugs has lapsed. And even if it hasn't, he was on a combination of drugs that precluded me using any corticosteroids, the kinds of things you'd use to kind of, on an emergency basis, to treat the spinal cord. So this is kind of what we're faced with, is this... uh, is this dog who, from a conventional medical perspective, the hind end is essentially doomed. And so some owners may choose not to persevere with that. However, you just he's also very anxious and very stressed. And so that's kind of where I started. So he's very anxious. He's very stressed. His tongue's very red. 
his pulse has got um, no tone to it. It doesn't lift your finger. It just kind of slaps against your finger. And that tells me all his circulation is very peripheral. So his heart's going a mile a minute. His circulation is very out to his periphery, and that's going to include his spinal cord. If there's anything inflammatory in his spinal cord, it's going to become much more severe. So I haven't written this dog off because I know if I can throw a proverbial ice pack on his spinal cord, perhaps I can decongest and deinflame it enough that I can get rid of it. I can't use the drug that every veterinarian would use for that, but I can use other things. So one of the things we used was acupuncture. And in the space of probably about a half an hour of an electroacupuncture treatment, you could feel the change in his circulation. It now had much more tone. His skin had cooled off. The dog had calmed down. The panting was a lot less. I couldn't see for sure any neurological improvements, but if they're going to happen, they'll probably happen in the next 24 or 48 hours. And then it's just a matter of invoking other things that do what the acupuncture does. So the acupuncture gets the ball rolling, and you have the dog improving within 10 or 15 minutes, and then you have herbs that kind of kick in over the course of, you know, one, two, three, seven, ten days. Um, and then you can kind of, assuming you're getting somewhere, eventually progress to uh, diet if it's important to, in terms of reducing the inflammatory response, etc. I used homeopathic belladonna on that dog, too. Because homeopathic belladonna, if you read the description, it's this very hot, bothered, agitated, febrile, exquisitely painful it treats the same dynamic that the acupuncture was treating and that the drug would have treated if I could use it and that the herbs treated. I used a formula called Chai Gu Jie Tong, which is kind of for, um, we use it, it fits the description of meningitis or acute meningeal inflammation extremely well. So I expect, knock on wood, that that dog will go home and do better. Of course, it could always fall prey to the radio curse, which is as soon as you start talking about an animal in a lecture, uh, somewhere around the world they drop dead. That's actually the all the time that we have for today, Steve, but we'd love for you to come back next week because you've just started giving us some really specific case examples. I'm sure people are going to be really interested in hearing more of those. So thanks for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Dr. Steve Marston is the author of Manual of Natural Veterinary Medicine and the textbook of Herbal Veterinary Medicine. For those of you who want to learn more about Dr. Marston's work, also he has a website where information about his unique clinic that treats both people and animals can be accessed as well as some of his uh, teachings. It is edmonton-veterinary.com. If you are interested in the school that Dr. Marston graduated from and that Lori and myself are teaching at, that go to ncnm.edu for information about Chinese medicine and the classics, go to classicalchinesemedicine.org. I'm Lori Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. Join us next week for another episode of True Nature Radio. True Nature Radio.